This is Guns and Butter. Where the TPP goes beyond the WTO is, again, in allowing individual corporations, elevating them to the level of nation states and allowing them to initiate those challenges themselves in these extrajudicial tribunals. And I know a lot of you uh, likely work with Move to Amend and have been fighting corporate personhood for years. You know, this goes beyond corporate personhood in that citizens don't have access to these tribunals. People don't. Domestic businesses certainly don't. It's just transnational corporations. And again, these, these tribunals effectively overturn our laws, our regulations, and even our court decisions. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Georgia Kelly, Arthur Stamoulis, Margaret Flowers, and Kevin Zeese. Today's show, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Forum. The Trans-Pacific Partnership Forum was part of Public Banking 2013, Funding the New Economy. The four panelists addressed different aspects of the TPP agreement, a global free trade treaty currently being negotiated in secret, which seeks to codify into law the absolute power of corporations. The TPP declares war on sustainability, local economy, sovereignty, and public banking. We begin with Georgia Kelly, the founder and director of Praxis Peace Institute, a Sonoma-based peace education organization. She addresses fast-track authority where Congress will be asked to surrender its responsibility under Section 1, Article 8 of the Constitution to regulate commerce with foreign nations. Georgia Kelly. So the part I wanted to talk a little bit about was the fast-track process, because this is something we can actually do something about, and maybe you've heard about the the, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership called NAFTA on steroids, or as one person said to me the other day, it's really the kind of agreement for corporations who think the wages in China are too high. (laughs) And that's probably true. So... The fast track is the process by which they're going to try to get this through uh, Congress without really a proper debate. And, uh, and what fast track is, I just want to tell you a little bit about what this process is, because this is the dangerous piece that could help this treaty actually become enacted. And this is where we have to intervene right now. Um, The U.S. Constitution, at least for 200 years, gave Congress the right to um, to conduct to, or to create treaties with foreign countries. But since maybe the last, since 1974, actually, when the first fast track was passed, trade agreements now bypass the Congress and go to the executive branch. So it gives the president that power to, to convene meetings in secret, which they've done. They have a, had at least 17 negotiating meetings that have been primarily done in secret, and we only know what we know tonight because some people have leaked this information. Um, so the first time the, the uh, fast track was actually used was mostly about trade. It wasn't about all the complicated things that have come into being since, like uh, royalties and food safety and agriculture and investments. Um, The second time it was used for GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades in 1979, or or that was actually the first, and then the U.S.-Israel Free Trade Agreement was another one in 1985. This was a bill less than four pages long. By 1988, things had changed, and its third use was for a U.S.-Canada free trade agreement, and the issues then exceeded simple trade. They included things like domestic agriculture, banking, investments, food inspection, 
policies, environmental policies, labor policies. And in 1993, Fast Track was used again for NAFTA and then in 1994 for the WTO. And for these two agreements, the treaties became much more than trade agreements again. So they infected uh, domestic uh, labor laws and environmental laws and gave the power again to this corporate entity really that was creating these agreements to sue sovereign nations who were putting their environmental or labor laws above uh, their profits and their interests. So the fast track gives the president the right to select the trade partners, set the terms, sign the agreements before Congress can even vote on them. It gives the executive branch unprecedented authority to write legislation and avoid congressional review. It prohibits any amendments to the legislation and requires a stepped-up voting process, skirting the congressional calendar. Um, Fast Track has created a false sense of crisis by demanding this push-through really quickly. I remember years ago I worked with uh, our current Governor Brown, and he said one time, have you ever noticed that whenever there's a crisis and a politician goes to the crisis, his poll numbers go up? He said, it's only a matter of time when they're gonna be creating the crises to get their poll numbers up. I think we've, we've seen that. So another thing with Fast Track is it um, established a, a private sector or what they call a trade authority committee where about 600 private advisors representing corporate interests have privileged access to the documents and the negotiators of these treaties and only a few representatives from labor, public health or the environment have anything to do with it. So most of these have taken place without any of us knowing anything about it. Um, I think at this point, we begin to see that fast track, which is a strategy that would help um, avoid a congressional debate and research into the details of the agreements. This, of course, is preferred by corporations who want to push this through without any real debate or, or understanding by the American people. Being able to override the sovereignty of a member country and being able to sue their governments if they interfere with the corporate profits would be a carte blanche or a get out of jail free card or a more likely never go to jail free card, no matter who they plunder or who they exploit. So the reinstatement of fast track would go a long way toward enabling what looks like a global corporate takeover actually take place. And I think what we need to do is be talking to our congresspeople, our senators, and insisting and in educating people about this fast track process which we want to stop from being reinstated. It expired in 2007, and right now there's the grumblings of to reinstate this fast track process. So this is our first order of business. Thank you. You've been listening to Georgia Kelly, Director of the Praxis Peace Institute. We continue with Arthur Stamoulis, Executive Director of Citizens Trade Campaign, a national coalition of labor, environmental, family, farm, consumer, and human rights organizations working together for trade policies that promote a just and sustainable global economy. Citizens Trade Campaign was the first to publish leaked text of several TPP chapters and organized protests at each of the TPP negotiating rounds in the United States. Today's show, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Forum. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This 
is guns and butter. Well, uh, thank you and, and good evening, everybody. I really appreciate all of you being here. I just want to thank the organizers of this in, important conference. So I've been tasked with providing an overview of the TPP and also to try to tie the TPP to this question of public banking that some of you may have heard of. Um, you know, uh, so I'm going to start with the big picture and then I'll, I'll try to narrow in on, on, to that question. But just starting with the basics. So the TPP is an international trade and investment pact that's currently under negotiation between the United States and a number of countries uh, across the Pacific Rim. Uh, there are Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, Vietnam, and starting this July, Japan. Uh, just among those dozen countries, uh, this would be the largest free trade agreement in U.S. history, covering approximately 40% of the global economy. So a very big deal in its own right. Uh, but the TPP has the potential to be even bigger than that because it's being negotiated uh, explicitly as what's called a docking agreement, meaning that other countries can dock on or join over time. And countries like the Philippines, Thailand, Colombia, uh, and this past week even China have been talking about potentially joining the TPP. Uh, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, which negotiates the pact on behalf of the United States, has said that the TPP is open to any Pacific Rim country that, you know, quote unquote, meets the high standards uh, we're setting for the pact. And, you know, they, they've said that they foresee the TPP eventually covering half the countries of the world. Uh, so this is quite literally a big deal. And, I, you know, I don't know how many of you have been fighting corporate globalization, uh, you know, for a while now, but for those of you who have, what this is, is an end run around the People's Movement victory at the World Trade Organization, the WTO, where ever since uh, the battle in Seattle in 1999, corporations have been trying to use the WTO to expand their agenda of more deregulation, more privatization, more liberalization. Uh, and ever since 1999, uh, various countries have been, within the WTO, have been saying no. Uh, and because the WTO ostensibly works by consensus, uh, and thanks to a lot of good cross-border organizing, uh, there's been a stalemate there about whether or not to move forward with big parts of, of the corporate agenda. Uh, and so corporations view the TPP as their way to get around that stalemate, to basically work through their proxy, the U.S. government, uh, to cherry-pick those countries that are most willing to play ball with what they want, uh, to set the rules of the game among that handful of countries, and then to use the docking mechanism over a period of years uh, to pressure other countries to join on one at a time. And so uh, the TPP is absolutely, as its architects claim, uh, a standard-setting pact for the 21st century. Okay, but what exactly does the TPP do? Um, I guess the first thing to acknowledge is that we don't know entirely. Um, as was alluded to, after three years and more than 17 major rounds of negotiations, uh, the Obama administration still refuses to tell the American public what it's been proposing in our names. Uh, and it's required that other countries sign agreements preventing them from sharing draft text as well. Uh, what we know about the TPP comes not from our own government, but from those handful of leaked texts and also, frankly, from conversations one-on-one -on -one with negotiators from other countries. You know, that said, we, we do have a pretty good picture of the, the PAC's overall direction, and certainly corporations have not been shy uh, over the years about saying what they want. Uh, but that's not exactly the same as me being able to pull up, you know, a draft online and show it to you or show it to a congressional staffer or show it to a reporter. And, and this is a, a rollback in transparency, by the way. 
uh, the Bush administration and 33 other countries released draft texts for the free trade area of the Americas, which is the last big uh, attempt at a corporate power grab like this one. Uh, draft texts are routinely published on the WTO website. Th this is a rollback, an intentional rollback, and I believe it's because you know the administration knows that if information got out about what they're proposing, the public would oppose it. And certainly uh, we've seen that with, with the draft chapters that have leaked, where civil society in those areas, like healthcare, like internet uh, freedom groups, have been doing the most organizing and the most mobilizing. Um, meanwhile, of course, while the administration keeps the public shut out from the process, uh, as was alluded to, they have granted approximately 600 corporate lobbyists access to the text so that Walmart, Chevron, Cargill, uh, others have special cleared advisor status that allows them to inform the process in real time uh, and have a big say in what the TPP contains. So to me, the entire process reeks of corruption. Uh, it's very clearly a backroom deal for transnational capital, but let's, let's talk about what corporations want, and, and real quickly here. You know, the retailers, the brands, the manufacturers, by which I mean the Walmarts, the Targets, you know, the Nikes, the General Electrics, they want what they've always wanted, which was cheaper and cheaper labor. Um, you know, in a variety of ways, the TPP will increase their access to low-cost labor markets in countries like Vietnam, where the average minimum wage is, in fact, a third of what it is in China's manufacturing centers. Uh, and uh, you are absolutely right that this is a trade pact for corporations that feel that Chinese workers are overpaid. Uh, the AFL-CIO's executive council has warned that the TPP jeopardizes literally millions of American jobs, far more than you know, the recent Korea Free Trade Agreement or CAFTA or even NAFTA. This has the potential to be the most damaging trade agreement for working people ever. And again, it's not just about undercutting wages and worker power here in the United States. It's about undercutting wages and worker power throughout the world. Um, and I don't think even the people who work on these issues have fully grasped just how serious uh, that is. But let me move on. So leaked documents show that the pharmaceutical industry is pushing for the TPP to extend the length of their monopoly drug patents. And I know Margaret's going to talk more about uh, its impact on healthcare later, but I'll just summarize by pointing out that the Nobel Peace Prize winning group, uh, Doctors Without Borders, has said that the TPP is the worst pact ever for access to medicines. And again, it's because of the leaked documents that they even got involved. Uh, Big Ag is pushing for the TPP to allow them to dump more taxpayer-subsidized wheat and corn and soy and sugar and rice onto other countries, uh, having the effect of devastating family farmers in Japan and Malaysia and elsewhere, just has already been done to Mexico and Central America under NAFTA and CAFTA. Uh, the so-called life sciences companies want the TPP uh, to introduce further caps on food safety and consumer right-to-know measures, and I could go on. I mean, there's certainly other interests, uh, industries with specific interests, you know, be it the extractive industries, be it Hollywood, others. Uh, but let me just skip ahead and talk about Wall Street. Uh, what we do know, we do know that the TPP contains a financial service chapter. Uh, it's not one that's leaked, so I can't tell you, you know, exactly what's been proposed. But I can tell you what was included in the much smaller Korea Free Trade Agreement uh, that passed in recent years. Uh, the Korea Free Trade Agreement contained provisions that prohibit governments from placing limits on the size of banks, insurance companies, and hedge funds, i.e., uh, no regulations designed to safeguard against too big to fail. 
the career free trade agreement contained provisions prohibiting bans on the sale of any specific type of financial instrument. So banning a particular risky derivative uh, would be prohibited. Not just the risky products we already know about, but whatever the wizards on Wall Street create 10 or 20 years from now. We're not allowed to ban the sale of those products either. Uh, implementing firewalls between different types of financial service providers is also expected to be prohibited under the TPP. So uh, we've heard repeatedly this weekend uh, of the Depression-era Glass-Steagall Act, which was gutted under the Clinton administration. Attempts to reestablish those firewalls between commercial and investment banks uh, are already prohibited, frankly, under, under some of our trade agreements, and that would be further entrenched under the TPP. The TPP is also expected to limit or ban the use of capital controls. Now, capital controls aren't something we use uh, too much here in the United States, but other countries, and we heard about Iceland today, uh, have used them to slow the spread of financial crises by regulating hot money flows into and out of a country. Uh, and these, frankly, are provisions that, depending on how they're written, uh, could also prohibit many types of financial transaction taxes. And so the financial services chapter is something certainly that everyone should want, you know, care about and, and be following and be aware of. Um, but I think there are, frankly, chapters of even greater concern to those working on public banking specifically. Um, one of those chapters is the state-owned enterprises chapter. I'll, I'll just say from the start uh, that our coalition has a number of unions uh, that are very worried about having to compete with imports from overseas state-owned enterprises uh, in the industrial sector. You know, these, these are companies that often get access to preferential financing, low-cost energy, other benefits um, that have undercut U.S. employers. Uh, and so the U.S. labor movement has been pushing for the TPP to include safeguards uh, that require exporting firms to compete on a more level playing field. And, you know, we fought for years for labor and environmental protections to be included in trade agreements, to lift living standards for working people uh, around the world. And now things like currency manipulation and state-owned enterprises are getting a lot more attention. You know, in a perfect world, these would be standards that would be well-written. They would further the goal of creating a more just and sustainable global economy. Uh, but I think we know, as with everything, the devil is in the details. And the corporate interest groups uh, pushing for SOE provisions do not have the same interests as labor unions pushing for SOE provisions. You know, one of the legal concepts that's sure to be included in an SOE chapter uh, is the idea of national treatment or non-discrimination. And what that means is that any sort of preferential treatment given to a state-owned enterprise would have to be given to its private sector competitors as well. Um, you know, the TPP's definition of a state-owned enterprise isn't public, so I can't tell you that every public bank would fall under it. Uh, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that, that many, if not most, would. Uh, and assuming that's the case, under national treatment rules, if your public bank is getting government guarantees on debt financing, exemptions from certain taxes, special access to government business or government deposits, you know, the easing of regulatory constraints, any sort of other direct subsidies or indirect subsidies that the private sector would want access to, the government would have to provide foreign uh, businesses in that sector with, with the same benefits. And the flip side of that same coin uh, is that um, the SOE chapter and potentially other parts of the pact could likewise require that any low-cost loans or other services provided by your public bank to local businesses also be provided to transnational corporations. 
And so, you know, you may want your bank to support California wine growers, and that's fine, just so long as they're also giving the same deals to winemakers in Chile and Australia and, you know, elsewhere throughout the world. It's hard to say what's going to be in there exactly. And frankly, I don't know uh, if anyone has done the hard analysis of the Korea-US free trade agreement yet, with public banking specifically in mind. Uh, Australia's public competitive neutrality guidelines are another area um, where serious scholars could be looking. Uh, but I do think it's safe to say that, that public banking could very much be at risk under the TPP. Uh, just recently, the Obama administration formally welcomed Japan's interest in joining. And one of the things that Japan reportedly agreed to in order to get a seat at the table is to further open its domestic insurance market. Um, Reuters specifically reported that Japan Post Insurance, which is a state-owned firm, uh, has specifically promised not to sell new cancer insurance policies or other standalone medical insurance policies until after the TPP is completed and international competition is uh, introduced in those sectors and that the, the Japan Post has a, quote, properly functioning business management system in place. Uh, so clearly, Wall Street is already capitalizing on the TPP's SOE provisions, and they're not even written yet. Um, let me also just really quickly mention one of the chapters of the TPP that has leaked, and that's the so-called investment chapter. Uh, what that chapter shows is that the U.S. is pushing for transnational corporations to be able to unilaterally initiate enforcement actions under the pact. So the investment chapter would allow any transnational corporation who feels that a government action, be it a new law, a new regulation, a permitting decision, a court decision, uh, violates a term of the TPP and negatively cuts into their expectation of profits, uh, they, can, they can challenge that and they can demand compensation through an international tribunal system that circumvents the U.S. court system or any other country's uh, domestic judicial system. This is called investor-to-state dispute resolution. Uh, under the World Trade Organization, we already have what's called state-to-state -state dispute resolution, where governments can challenge each other's policies as trade violations. Um, and under that system, the United States has already lost more than 90% of the more than 65 cases brought against us uh, with portions of the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, all being uh, attacked and chopped back. Uh, more recently, the U.S. has lost cases pertaining to internet gambling restrictions, tobacco controls, country of origin labeling for meat products. Uh, where the TPP goes beyond the WTO is, again, in allowing individual corporations, elevating them to the level of nation states and allowing them to initiate those challenges themselves in these extrajudicial tribunals. And I know a lot of you uh, likely work with Move to Amend and have been fighting corporate personhood for years. You know, this goes beyond corporate personhood in that citizens don't have access to these tribunals. People don't. Domestic businesses certainly don't. It's just transnational corporations. And again, these, these tribunals effectively overturn our laws, our regulations, and even our court decisions. Um, the tribunals cannot literally force a country to change its laws, but what it can do is order any size dollar penalty it chooses, such that if a country doesn't want additional cases brought against it, it gets in line. Um, you know, I'll mention that the United States is already party to a number of free trade agreements and, and bilateral investment treaties that have this private investor-to-state dispute resolution, but with a few notable exceptions, it's mainly with small developing countries. And so the history has been for U.S.-based transnationals 
to attack and gut the democratic processes of much smaller nations. The TPP would dramatically expand this system throughout the Pacific Rim. Uh, my expectation is that it'll still be small nations that bear the brunt of it, uh, but certainly with big capital exporting nations like Japan involved, the chickens could come home to roost and we can start seeing a lot more of our own policies uh, attacked and undercut. Um, you know, that's not specific to public banking by any means. Honestly, uh, it's environmental policies and consumer right to know policies that uh, have come under attack the most to date and will likely be attacked first. Uh, certainly the extractive industries in big ag have the most experience abusing the system. Uh, still, the point is a, a foreign government wouldn't need to initiate a challenge and have a beef with a public bank in, in California or elsewhere in the United States to challenge it under the TPP. Any foreign financial service provider could do so, and frankly, any Wall Street firm's overseas subsidiary could likely do so. Uh, let me just wrap up very quickly by saying two things. Uh, the first is don't let a trade agreement prevent you from pushing forward with the public bank or any other piece of public policy you think is important. Uh, as much as corporations hope and expect that the TPP will force deregulation in other countries, they also hope that it'll have a chilling effect on regulations and public policy in this country. You know, they view PACs like the TPP as an opportunity to implement new laws that they could never pass through Congress as a standalone bill. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen the TPP tax done on SOEs in the financial service chapter. I don't know for a fact that any public bank proposal uh, is definitely a violation of the TPP, and it's not our job to argue that it is. Uh, if some corporation wants to bring a suit, let them bring a suit. Let's fight it together, and if years down the road we lose, let's use that as more fodder to expand the movement to reverse our awful trade policies. But that, you know, that's the first note. <laughs> the second thing I want to say in conclusion is that there is a long, proud history of cross-border people's movements defeating corporate power grabs disguised as trade agreements. Uh, I suspect Kevin's going to talk about this more, uh, but there's no reason for despair here. With a little effort, we will defeat the TPP, and there are lots of tools out there to help you do that, and I look forward to talking about them during the Q&A. So thank you. You've been listening to Arthur Stamoulis, Executive Director of Citizens Trade Campaign, which is currently coordinating national campaigns around the TPP and Fast Track. Visit www.citizentrade.org. We continue with Margaret Flowers, a Baltimore-based pediatrician, a co-director of It's Our Economy, and a fellow with Physicians for a National Health Program. Today's show, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Forum, I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I want to echo the thanks for all of you being here tonight um, because this is really the key to how we're going to stop the TPP, and we are going to stop the TPP. It was so exciting to see the article in the New York Times today, and I just wanted to read a quote from Ron Kirk, who was the former U.S. Trade Representative who was quoted in that piece, and he said that, Making the TPP public would raise such opposition, it would make the deal impossible to sign. So guess what our goal is? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
And as Georgia mentioned, the first thing that we need to stop is fast tracked, which is not called fast track anymore because if you haven't caught on, they keep changing the names of things as soon as we figure out that they're not good. Um, so this is now called Trade Promotion Authority. Right. Senator Baucus, many of you may have heard, he's the chair of the Finance Committee. And actually, I have a really special place in my heart for Senator Baucus because he was the first person to ever order my arrest. Um, but Senator Baucus, who's decided to retire, is giving this gift, this parting gift to the corporations of making fast track his priority. Uh, so I, for me, please help us stop Senator Baucus from passing fast track. Um, I really wanted to focus on the impacts of TPP on healthcare because that's something I'm passionate about. And um, it's really remarkable to me when I read this text and I hear that a state-owned enterprise has unfair advantages and that the TPP needs to level the playing field. Do you remember hearing that during the healthcare reform process? We have to level the playing field because if we have a public health program, it's not fair to the insurance companies, right? And, and the reason that they say is because, quote unquote, they have political objectives, not commercial considerations. What are those political objectives? It's like actually to provide health care for their population. <laughs> that, but that's not good because that's not commercial. So that's what they're trying to stop and, and saying that things like public health systems, which would be considered state-owned enterprises, would have these unfair advantages of you know, sp special tax status or access to low rate loans and things like that. So when it comes down to, in the TPP, the bottom line in healthcare is that they want to put profit before health. And so we do know that there are certain provisions in there, of course we don't know all the details, that have to do with protecting the profits of the pharmaceutical and medical device corporations. Um, so that's what I wanted to kind of hit first. And there's three kind of areas to talk about. One is patent protections. There are chapters in the TPP talking about protection of intellectual property. Um, and we know from past trade agreements that had that, and Korea is one of them, that um, because of those provisions, it actually increased the cost of pharmaceuticals in Korea by 20% with no benefit. The, you know, Korea is paying 20% more for nothing better than what they were getting before. Um, so that's not good. The patent protection laws they're putting in place are this evergreen type of patent protection. So if a pharmaceutical company patents a medication, they get a 20-year patent. But if they just determine that there's another use for that medication, like, oh, this was made for headaches, but now we found out it works for heartburn, then they get another 20 years. Or if they formulate a different way to deliver it, like now we're using gel instead of just caplets, um, they get another 20 years. So it's really just an evergreen. They can just keep finding ways to keep extending those patents, and that's what's really dangerous. But in addition to that, they're doing an attack on, on countries like actually Australia and Japan have like two of the top health systems in the world, and they have um, pharmaceutical you know, groups within their health system that negotiate for pharmaceutical prices. Well, that's considered an unfair advantage. If you're negotiating for a price that's lower than what the market price is, then you're using your market power as a, as a nation to drive down the prices, and that's not fair. What's really interesting is the flip side, is that when a government protects the patents of a pharmaceutical company that allows them to keep charging high prices, that's not market power. 
<laughs> so do you get how this works? Right? So um, let me just check my notes and make sure that I'm getting all of this. Oh, the other thing is that um, when they determine what is a fair price, this fair market price, they add in the cost of research and development, marketing and production. And of course, marketing is actually a lot more for a lot of these pharmaceutical companies than what they spend on research and development and production, right? So if they're determining the price based on all those things, it means that it drives the price up. Instead of basing it on like a generic, what it would actually cost to produce a generic drug, we're basing it on the cost of what it, what it is to produce this high-end drug that we're spending a lot of money to market to you. Um, it also gives pharmaceutical companies advantages they haven't had before under these investor state provisions to sue um, if they think that a, a policy wasn't fair or a price wasn't fair to them. And then um, this is another kicker, is that if a national health program negotiates for a price for a pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical company can challenge that price if they think that it wasn't a fair, um, a fair price for them to get, which is something they haven't been able to do before. So, um, not good news for us and, um, or our you know, patients. If these prices go high, they're going to start to gut um, national health systems around the world, take the money that they should be spending on direct health care services and put it into the pockets of these pharmaceutical corporations and also the medical device corporations as well. Um, now, the, you're probably familiar that the U.S. healthcare system is a little bit of an aberration compared to other countries, <laughs> civilized nations, um, because we use a market-based approach to healthcare, the private insurance uh, systems that we have. And our private insurance corporations are, many of them are multinational corporations as well. And we also know that there's kind of this trend of, you know, they're always really sneaky. Like, they say, well, we're just going to do this. But then the next year, well, we're just going to do this more, and the next year a little bit more. So where does it stop? You know, if, if, if a country that has a national health system that negotiates for prices with pharmaceutical companies is getting an unfair advantage, does that mean that when they offer a public insurance to the people in their country, that that's an unfair advantage as well, and that the private insurance companies should have those same advantages or be, you know, have a level playing field. I mean, they, we don't really know where this is going to go. Oh, and the other piece is that, which is remarkable, that we would negotiate, but I guess not, because we always do things against our interests, but um, that this actually undermines our own public health programs here in the United States. The Veterans Health Administration, which negotiates for fair prices, that wouldn't be fair. That could be challenged. Um, Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, all of our public health systems will actually be threatened by the, the TPP. So uh, it's really important that we stop this. We can stop this. And I know that um, Kevin is going to give you the recipe for what we can do to make that happen. Thanks. You've been listening to Margaret Flowers, MD. She left practice in 2007 to advocate full-time for a single-payer health care system at both the state and national levels. She is currently a spokesperson for Physicians for a National Health Care Program. Visit www.itsoureconomy.us. Our final panelist is Kevin Zeese, 
an attorney who advocates for democratizing the economy as the co-director of It's Our Economy and serves on the steering committees of the Bradley Manning Support Network and October2011.org, which organized the occupation of Washington, D.C. on Freedom Plaza. He discusses how we can fight the TPP. Today's show, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Forum. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, thank you all for making it through this great long day. It's really been phenomenal stuff right from the beginning. And I really want to thank the Public Banking Institute for putting on a great conference. This is really an excellent conference. Let me say, let me say that this battle against the Trans-Pacific Partnership is an epic battle. It is the people of the world against transnational corporate power. I can tell you this, the people are going to win. We are going to win this battle. Um, and I think the recipe for winning uh, is, is evident. And it's evident in that quote that Margaret just gave from Ron Kirk. If we know what's in it, it's not going to pass. Well, sounds real good, doesn't it? So I think we have two goals as our first two goals. One, release the text. Stop the secrecy. We want a transparent government. We want to see transparency in government. We want to know what's in the, uh, the, the laws that are being passed, and that's what this is. A trade agreement is a law. Second, no fast track. We believe in the rule of law. We believe in the Constitution. Checks and balances. Congress has a job to do. In the Constitution, the Congress is the one who enters into trade agreements, into, into treaties, not the president. Congress needs to keep their power. We need to stop fast track. We need to stop trade promotion authority. And they know that if, if we win those two battles, we will win the war. If people know what's in it and Congress does its job, we will stop this trade agreement. Now, how are we going to do it? Well, the first thing we want to do is we want to create solidarity. Every issue we care about, health care, labor, environment, climate change, finance regulation, uh, labor laws, wages, the race to the bottom on so many issues, these are all going to be adversely affected by the Trans-Pacific Partnership. This is an opportunity to bring the movement together into a movement that's against the rule of money, against corporate power, against transnational corporations in favor of people and planet before profit. That is what we stand for. We announced a project uh, this week that was a, a, a continuation of our resistance work after about a year of talking with colleagues and trying to figure out how to bring the movement to the next level. Uh, we decided to put together a project with about, uh, about 50 people who are advisors on it now uh, called Popular Resistance. If you haven't seen this card, popularresistance.org, people viewing and watching this on live stream, popularresistance.org, go to it, sign up for it. We announced that our first campaign is going to be to stop the TPP. And there's a several steps to that. First is the solidarity, bring people together. Uh, and the second step is education. All transformation begins with education. You know, I, we've been going around the country, Margaret and I and, and Art, Arthur, talking about the TPP. Uh, Arthur's been doing it for about three years. We've been doing it about a year and a half. And what we found when we started was that almost nobody in the activist community had heard of the TPP. They had been very successful at negotiating this thing in secret, quietly, with no one knowing. 
Uh, and I, that's begun to change. Now when we go to audiences, I'd say about 30 to 40 percent of activists know about it. I bet in this room we had even a higher percentage. Uh, and, uh, and, and when people know about it, they get active on it. Um, what we, what we uh, did, in fact, one of the first projects we got involved in was uh, just around the time of the Democratic uh, Convention uh, last year. Uh, they had a round of meetings in Leesburg, Virginia. They did it out in a resort. Uh, it was a secret meeting. You know, they didn't want the, the press to show up, of course, and the corporate advisors were online watching it and, and, you know, keeping track of what was going on. What we decided to do to let the public know what was going on was we flew a, gi a gigantic series of weather balloons with two big ones with, that looked like a crack of a behind. We had some shorts on them, and it said, uh, free trade my ass. <laughs> this is flying over their secret meeting. And, under, and, and coming, out, coming, out of those, coming out of those balloons was a long strand that said, flush the TPP. <laughs> Hope you can remember that. TPP, Toilet Paper Plus. So flushthetpp.org is a website you can send people to. It's on our economic site right now, but we're going to be developing a campaign on popular resistance around it. Flushthetpp.org is a great way to get lots of resources. That's one great site. Arthur's site is also excellent. Citizenstrade.org is a great way to get information. The first step is education. Spread the word to people. Let people know what's going on. The Green Shadow Cabinet is going to be announcing next week that this is going to be a campaign we're going to take on as well. What we're going to have is we're going to have people who are late. We have about 100 people by the way, involved in this alternative government. And they're really, Guy Arpervitz, who was here earlier, really top-notch people are involved in this effort. We're going to be putting out reports from our labor group, from our finance group, our environmental group, our climate group, explaining how the TPP adversely affects those, those issues. So follow the Green Shadow Cabinet as reports come out. Share them with your networks. We are the media, folks. The corporate media has no credibility. Their readership is declining. Their profits are disappearing. Their viewers are minimal. We are the media. The people in this room and watching on TV now can tell the world the truth about the TPP. If we act in solidarity and with intention, intention to let the world know what the truth is, we can do it. We all have networks. We have email lists. We have websites we're part of. We have Facebook. We have social networks. We have Twitter. All sorts of ways to get the word out. If we act together, we can educate the country on this issue. And that's the first step towards success. So flush the TPP, citizens trade. And you can even educate people on the right wing about this. Because the, really at the root of this issue is the issue of sovereignty. The issue of sovereignty. You know, we've heard a little bit about these trade tribunals, this whole new governmental system that's being created. Let me just tell you one piece about that that you can tell to any, anyone on the political spectrum and they'll get nauseated. Tell them that these trade tribunals will be made up of three judges. And most of those judges will be corporate lawyers on leave from their corporate job and then ruling for the corporation and then going back to their corporate job. That's a rigged system, allowing them to sue governments over environmental regulations, environmental laws, over labor laws. So you think little Vietnam that's in poverty is going to pass an environmental law when they're going to get sued by GE or J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs or Monsanto. You think they're going to pass an environmental law and face that lawsuit with, a judge they, with the judges they know come from the corporations? That environmental law is not going to be passed. And so if you care about the environment, if you care about labor, you've got to be concerned about this. And so anyone who's on the, in, in any part of the political spectrum is going to be concerned about the loss of sovereignty in this global corporate coup. And that's what this is, a global corporate coup. Things like SOPA, the control of the Internet, 
that couldn't get through Congress. They're trying to pit that through the TPP. Electronic Freedom Foundation has put out re reports on that if you want to see what that's about. On issue after issue, we're going to see a, a movement toward privatization, neoliberalism, and corporatism. And so educate. The second thing we have to do is protest. Resistance works. And I'll explain the history of that a little bit in the latter part of this, 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 uh, this talk. Resistance works. I'll just give you one example during Occupy. You may remember during Occupy that the super committee, remember the super committee? Super committee. They were up there. They were going to solve the deficit problem. Remember that? They were, they were meeting. They had three public meetings. That's all three. They had a bunch of private ones where they were planning, and then Obama was negotiating the grand bargain with them. They're going to cut Medicare, cut Social Security, cut veterans' benefits, cut all sorts of social programs in order to balance the budget. Well, you know, we, we, we protested that. We were occupying Washington, D.C. at Freedom Plaza. We had one great, uh, one great uh, activist, Leah Bolger, who was at the time the, the uh, head of uh, Veterans for Peace, who walked up to the, one of the few committee meetings they held. She got in the audience. They started. She walked up to the front of the committee, right in front of them, so C-SPAN could see it, and, uh, and told them, she was wearing a great shirt, said, Greed Kills. White, white letters, black shirt, greed kills. And she said, stop lying to the public. We know how to end the debt. Stop the wars and tax the rich. Now, there's a simple message. And then we had people outside the hallway protesting, outside the building protesting, Occupy Wall Street, marched down from New York City, from Philadelphia, from Baltimore. And we held a super committee hearing on, the, uh, on Freedom Plaza, C-SPAN cover. We put forward our own deficit plan, the 99% deficit plan. And it solved the deficit problem in three years because we stopped the wars and taxed the rich. And, uh, and so we were able to put that forward. And um, what happened was the super committee... They snuck out of town without even holding a press conference. They didn't put out a report. It didn't happen. They were stopped because they were afraid of what kind of explosion would happen. We've got to make them afraid of us. We've got to make them afraid of us. You know, Chris Hedges tells this great story. Chris Hedges, who's a good colleague of ours, tells this great story of uh, Nixon sitting in the White House. He had put up buses, empty buses, surrounding the White House during the Vietnam War protests. And he leans over to Henry, says, Henry Kissinger, he says, Henry, Henry. They're going to get through those buses. They're coming in here. They're going to get through. That's what we want them to be thinking. That's where they should be. So protest. We're going to protest. We're going to protest Congress members at, at their home offices in Washington, D.C. We're going to protest Monsanto, Walmart, the agribusiness, and the, 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 the J.P. Morgans and the big finance that are behind this. They're going to know that people are riled up, and they're going to know Ron Kirk was right. If the people know what's in this, it's not going to pass. That's what we're going to show them, and we're going to make that happen. It's going to win. And you know what happens when we win? We're going to build on that. We're going to build so we can get public banking. We're going to build so we can break up the big banks, so we can create a finance system for the people, which is what Margaret and I will be talking about tomorrow, creating a finance system for the people and a health system for the people. When we win a TPP, the people will show them they can beat transnational corporate power. And that's how you build movements. You build movements on winning. You build movements on winning. So I know everyone has their own issues and their own concerns, but this is an issue that should unite us, and if we win this issue, we can win the other issues. So let's join together. Let me just quickly talk a little bit. Do I have a little time still? To talk about how we know what works. You know, there's a book out actually called Why Civil Resistance Works. If you haven't seen it, I'd recommend you check it out. It's a, it's a hundred-year history of the last uh, century of civil resistance efforts. And, and it's a kind of an empirical study. 
and it looks at, you know, what works and what doesn't. They start, by the way, with comparing violent versus nonviolent movements. And there's no question, nonviolent wins much more often. I'm not saying violent never wins, uh, but nonviolent wins much more often than violent does. Uh, the, the track record is quite clear. But then they look at nonviolent movements and they say, why did this one fail and this one succeed? And they start to analyze it and they look at it and they start to look for what the issues are. And basically, what it comes down to is mass, uh, mass movements succeed and fringe movements fail. We need to become a mass movement. Mass movements succeed and fringe movements fail. How do you become a mass movement? Several steps. First, you become a mass movement by first um, having a, a, a vision that's supported by most Americans. We have that. You know, we've, we've looked at polling of Americans. We, have, we, did, we did this before the Occupy in Washington, D.C. We looked at polling. We found that American people are much more with us on issue after issue after issue than the media tells us. The public, despite... The, you know, the myth-making media that provides us misinformation more than accurate information uh, tries to manipulate us to a corporate perspective. The people don't buy it. Their credibility is down, and the people are right on the issues. So our, our vision is end the rule of money. Make sure that people and planet come before profits. That is a vision that will be supported by a majority of Americans. And just like during the Civil Rights Movement, when the end of Jim Crow was the issue, the end of segregation was the issue, the end of, ra uh, end of racial unfairness was the issue, uh, not everybody got involved in fighting for that. Even though majorities supported it and majorities supported our view, not everybody's going to get involved. But everybody doesn't have to get involved. What we saw with Occupy was the power of people. I would say at the, the maximum, Occupy had probably 400,000, maybe 300,000 or 400,000 people involved at its peak. And most of those were in Oakland. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and that's about 0.1% of the population. 0.1%. Look at the fear they had. The whole Obama national sec security apparatus, Homeland Security, FBI, got involved with walking all the police departments across the country. They infiltrated. They divided. They undermined. They sent down criminals to, to occupy camps to cause trouble. They worked against us. They were afraid of us. 0.1% of us. 0.1%. What happens when we get to 1%? We go from 300,000 to 3 million. Oh, they'll be scared. We can do that. We can do that. That's within our reach. And what happens when we get to 10%? I'll tell you what it shows. The research shows at 10% we win. At 10% we win. And that's where we're going, folks. And the first step is winning the Trans-Pacific Partnership. How do you build a mass movement? You build a mass movement by weakening the pillars of power that hold the status quo in place. Again, this is shown by research. Another great website you may want to check out if you don't know it already is the Albert Einstein Institute, aeinstein.org. You can download all sorts of books there for free. They have uh, over 200 uh, tactics you can use in nonviolent movements to give you ideas of what you can try to do. But the basic thrust is you want to build our mass movement by pulling people from the pillars of power. What are the pillars of power? Youth are key. Labor is key. Media is key. Business, religious, nonprofits, civil servants, police, and military. That's the pillars of power. And the goal is not to get everybody from those to, to our side, but to pull people from those pillars to the movement so we become a mass movement and the pillars that hold the status quo in place become weaker. That is how we win. That is how we build a mass movement that strengthens our power and weakens their power. And by the way, 
the research shows that if you can break up the police and military, start to pull some of those to our side, your chances of winning are 60% more likely. Those are two key ones. That's why nonviolence is more successful. Because who wants to, you know, join a movement that's having a, a war with the police and military? And how, how the police and military won't join you. In fact, we saw this in Occupy. You might remember this scene uh, in Wall Street. Second, second weekend of Occupy Wall Street, they had marches at Union Square. The police divided the marches up, arrested some people. They had some women behind, some orange mesh. An officer, Joe Bologna, what a great name, went over and sprayed pepper spray in the faces of women who were already under arrest. They were not doing anything. They were behind orange mesh. And the video showed there were citizens' media, which is so critical. Six or seven different cameras had the video of this pepper spray, and they showed that these women were not doing anything wrong. And you could see on the video, one of the, the, the officer Joe Bologna was a commander, white shirt cop. One of the blue collar cops, the street cops, you could hear him on the tape saying, Wow, I can't believe he just pepper sprayed them. <laughs> Divide the cops. Right? That divided the cops. It showed it. And then that night, in that night, you had on, on MSNBC, Larry, Larry O'Donnell did a monologue, whose father was a cop, by the way. His, his father was a cop. Uh, they, uh, they, he did a monologue supporting the occupiers. We got the media. We get in the public. And so you saw how acting... Now, if those women, on the other hand, had been doing violence, throwing apples or batteries or saying war on pigs, uh, done something, you know, to antagonize the police, that blue-collar cop would have said, thank goodness... He pepper sprayed them. And Larry O'Donnell was said, those, those protesters deserved it. But because they were acting with strategic intelligence, they actually helped to grow the movement. Now, of course, the government sent in infiltrators and things changed, and then we have to watch out for that. But that is how you build a movement. That's what we can do uh, to, uh, to, to win, this, win this battle. Let me just close with one final thing. You heard from Gar... Alpervitz, how we're in this moment of history, perhaps. I think we are in this moment of history. He focused on what we call the second, the two, we have a two-track two tragedy, where you protest what you don't like and build what you want. We call it stop the machine, create a new world. He focused on the create the new world part, the cooperatives, public banks, people advocating for single-payer health care, uh, people putting in place all sorts of new economic models for controlling housing. Uh, but there's also the other side, which is the protest side, which is also bubbling up, the stop-the-machine side. You know, we, on this popularresistance.org uh, popular website, which if you, if you ever get depressed and think nothing's happening, go to popularresistance.org because we track what's happening. You will see that there are protesters, resistors, acting all the time, challenging the system. Resistance is growing. Resistance is bubbling up. We are creating a movement, we, and, and the media is not covering it, but we don't expect the media to cover it because our media is going to cover it. We're going to, let the, we're going to let people know that this is happening. And so we're in this moment where you see resistance growing. We see building growing. Both Stop the Machine Creating the World are getting bigger. And the government is not responding. The government is being dysfunctional and corrupt. The economy is being dysfunctional and corrupt. And that's going to mean that it's going to keep growing. Both of our stop and build is going to keep growing. Now, some of you may have heard this phrase, the great turning. It's been around for about 10 or 15 years now. That's what we're in the middle of. We're in the middle of a great turning. This is an epic moment in history, and it's a time when we are facing multiple crises at the same time, energy, environment, wealth divide, housing, health care. We have 15 different crises listed on popularresistance.org. And this is a moment when these crises are coming together the same time the people are waking up, the awakening and the crisis. 
This great turning, folks, is what we're in, and we're going to start to turn the tide in our favor when we stop the TPP. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to Kevin Zeese. Today's show has been the Trans-Pacific Partnership Forum. Kevin Zeese is an attorney and co-founder of It's Our Economy. Visit www.itsoureconomy.us and www.popularresistance.org. The Trans-Pacific Partnership Forum was part of the larger Public Banking Institute's Public Banking 2013 Funding the New Economy Conference of June 2nd through 4th in San Rafael, California. The Public Banking Institute's vision is to fund the new economy with cheap and affordable credit generated from the deposits that city, county, and state governments currently place in Wall Street banks. In California alone, taxpayers have tens of billions of dollars of credit that is being used by the Wall Street banks to serve the interests of the private banks, not the public. The existing monetary and banking system rewards those who impose scarcity on others. Visit www.publicbankinginstitute.org. That's publicbankinginstitute.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yarrow Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's gunsandbutter.org.